is a big question, the question a lot of people ask. Uh, it is, we cannot possibly, you know, fully dis- delve into this in even a, a series. We've been talking about this on a certain level, and we know that last week, if you weren't with us, we talked about heaven and hell. We talked about the glory. And, and just, I got to ask, who did their homework this week? Anybody do their homework? Okay, a couple of you guys get A's, everyone else fails. But no, we, uh, you know, we, we, did, we talked last week about the glory of God and how heaven reveals his glory. And it was great. If you were not here with us, I encourage you to go check our website out, listen to it. Uh, it was, if you can go past the preacher, it was good stuff. But uh, no, I just really, I encourage you to do that. But this morning, uh, we're talking about Israel. And you know, there's not a week that goes by that Israel's not in the news, Right? It's huge. You, you can't miss it. And it, you'd think for the amount of press that Israel gets, it'd be one of the largest nations on the planet, right? You'd think that, but it's not true. Na- Israel, uh, population-wise, is just a little bit more than 7 million people. It's just slightly more than the state of Washington as far as population. Its landmass is slightly more, not much more, than the state of New Jersey, so a state of New Jersey-sized landmass with the population of Washington has been, has, been, has been dominating the news story since the 40s. It's incredible. And, and this morning, it's interesting. You'd think that because of the way that many people on the planet view Israel, it would be one of the most oppressive nations on the planet. It's fascinating. Over the last 10 years, what's happened around our world, isn't it? The change in sentiment towards Israel. Take a look here. I want to show you from 2006 to 2015. Here's a sampling of the UN Human Rights Council. These are people that have nothing better to do than complain. No, I'm just kidding. They, they talk about and they, they condemn people groups and nations around the world for doing terrible atrocities to people. Uh, here's a few of these spots right here. First of all, Al-Qaeda. And this is striking. Al-Qaeda, which we know who they are, we know what their situation is. Al-Qaeda has received zero condemnations from this uh, Human Rights Council. Iran, which is, of course, the nation that's vowed to destroy countries, to wipe them off the planet. Iran has received five condemnations. Seems like a lot. Uh, Hamas, which, of course, is the Southwest Israel terror group that control the Gaza Strip. Uh, This is a people that launch rockets from elementary schools. Uh, They are terrible to their own people. They've been condemned once. ISIS, we know, of course, is we know the story of ISIS, been condemned once. Hezbollah, which is a terror group launching rockets across northern Israel, uh, condemned zero times. And uh, Boko Haram, which uh, is an African terrorist group, they have been terrorizing northern, if you probably heard these places in the news too, they've been terrorizing northern Nigeria for years. They raid towns and villages, and they, they take away women and children, women and, children and, and, and such, and do a terrible atrocities to them. It's unbelievable. Boko Haram has been condemned one time. Now, Israel, 
This is fascinating. Israel, you think, okay, they're not perfect. Sure, you know, they don't, whatever. Okay, is it, how bad is Israel? Israel, look at this, has been condemned 61 times in that same period. 61 now, is Israel 61 times worse than some of these other people? Are they 61 times worse? I, I don't think that's the case. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And my fear is, is that today we do not understand in the church and in Christianity, we don't understand how cool and how important Israel's existence is. Now, is Israel perfect? No. Guess what? They never have been. If you read the Old Testament, you find that Israel is not, and was not, and has not been perfect. But guess what? Me neither. We miss this. To miss this idea, to miss this concept of Israel and the importance it has in Scripture is to miss an opportunity to see one of the greatest fulfillments of prophecy in modern times. It really is. And to not get let this be a part of your understanding and belief system will be to miss seeing God do something that he does to see one of God's most most important character traits on display, God's faithfulness to his promises. Because Israel, the whole concept of Israel, all comes back to many, many years ago, 2,000-some years ago, or actually thousands more than that, with a promise between Abraham, at that time Abram, and God. Abram was righteous. Abram loved God. And God promised to Abram that from Abram, from his family, would be a nation that would bless the entire planet. That from that nation, that from that people, would be, pe- would be a people would rise up that would be as numerous as the sand on the seashores. It would be a nation, would be a people. It's fascinating. It's amazing. And we know, of course, that Israel exists today. But what we take for granted sometimes is that that's not always been the case. Actually, for much of human history in the recent years, it's not been the case. Uh, 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 for thousands of years, Israel was, was not there. And, and in 500 B.C., we're going way, way back here, 2,500 years ago, Israel was conquered, uh, especially the southern parts, by a ruthless, terrible, insatiable, power-hungry king. We know who he was. He was King Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebi as we'll call him today, because I can't say Nebuchadnezzar very well. But uh, they were weakened because they were split in two. If you know a little bit about Bible history, uh, Israel was was split in two, the north and the south. They were split because of compromise, spiritual compromise, and lack of unity. That'll preach a whole bunch right there. Not today, though. Uh, they They were split there. And so Nebuchadnezzar, who for years tried to take Israel down, saw his chance at this point in history. It's an important point of history. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and for the first time is able to conquer Israel. And he takes them down, and he captures and takes off their best people, leaders. He takes off artisans. He takes, uh, again, leaders, prophets, ministers, uh, so, you know, businessmen, businesswomen. He takes them all off and hauls them into captivity. That's where we get Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they were, three of those were taken off in captivity. Daniel, you know, the, Daniel lines then. He was taken off into captivity. And also was Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a great prophet and priest. 
He was one of the preeminent voices in Israel for God this time as a, as a prophet. He was taken off and captivated and, and, and taken into Babylon as a captive. And around this time, not far after the captivity, Ezekiel has a dream. And it is a significant dream. It is a huge dream. He has a vision that God is showing him that God was going to restore the nation of Israel. Now, again, you think, well, big deal. You know, he did that. This seemed to be literally impossible. When you've got Nebuchadnezzar, when you've got a, a king, and you've got a nation as, as Babylon, which, which was as hating uh, Israel as much as they did, and as powerful as they were, and as weak as Israel had become, this seemed absolutely impossible. One of Nebuchadnezzar, or Nebi, one of his main goals to destroy Israel was to disperse Israel. Now, what does that mean? That simply means this. If you made a, a, a pot of of coffee, or you made some lemonade, and you were to take out your lemonade, uh, the little frozen square or cylinder that it is, and you put it in the, the, the water. When I make lemonade, I, I put it in the hot water because it melts it faster, whatever. That's a little tip for me from my cooking lessons. But you, you put it in the, in the water, and, and the, 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 the original concentrate disperses and it becomes less concentrated. It changes the, the makeup of the, of, of the mixture. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do with Israel. He wanted to disperse them. This actually happened twice. And this time, this first time, I hope, hope you're with me here, this first time was the first dispersion of, of Nebuchadnezzar. It was temporary. It was for 70 years. Israel was taken out of the nation, and they were not allowed back in. They were cast all over the planet. They cast them all over the known world. And they put them all over the place. And then 70 years later, they were able to return back to their nation. But this time, they were not allowed to self-govern themselves. So they were, though they're back in their nation, they were under the rule of Babylon and other parts and other, and and nations rose up and fell. But Israel was never allowed to self-govern again. And in this context comes Jesus. Years later, that's how it was for many, many years. Jesus came into this context. Jesus came into a, an Israel that was, though back in their homelands, they were not able to self-govern themselves. So we have, of course, the Romans who conquered them and who governed them. They, they had some little, you know, responsibilities. But for the most part, it was just it was just, it was Rome who, who led them, and that's the world that Jesus operated in. What's fascinating is that the people, that the Jews, wanted Jesus to start an insurrection and stand up as the Messiah and, just, and to, to, to take down Rome. That's the whole purpose of why Jesus, the story and, and the timing and when he came is so amazing and compelling. Because Jesus, the people had this idea of what he would do, but he didn't do it that way. See, his his insurrection was against sin, was against the religious establishment, was against these things to say, hey, you need to change. You need to walk away from sin. You need to live your life like I've called you to live. And so this is where Jesus was born, lived, died, was crucified, and hallelujah, he rose again. That was the first dispersion. And so the second dispersion came 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. And so what happened here was that 
there had been many times when the Jews tried to stand up and revolt, and they couldn't do it. And so here, at this point, 40 years after Christ was, was crucified, a man named Simon Bar-Hakba, and I tried to say that a hundred times, I think I got it, Simon Bar-Hakba stood up and said, if the time is here, the time is now for us to take back Israel. And so he does this, and Simon believed, he was crazy, a lot of the historians like Josephus and such believed that Simon was a crazy man, and he believed that he was the Messiah with all of his heart. So he believed that he was going to do what Jesus could not do. And that was the whole concept, is he said, I'm going to stand up, we're going to take back the land, we're going to raise up, it's going to be great, we're going to do it again. He was crazy, people knew that. But he provided what they wanted, and this was the last straw for Rome. So what happened at this point is 500,000-some Jewish men were killed almost instantly, uh, were just slaughtered by Rome. Uh, Simon was one of those, and there's, there's stories told of bodies. This is gruesome, but it's what happened. There's bodies that were lining streets down to Jerusalem to remind the Jews that this is what happens when you stand up against Rome. When you dare to do that, one of the, uh, one of the, the, the things that they said when, this, when, when, when Jerusalem fell is they said the Latin word, Hiroshima Esperdia. And they would yell, Hiroshima Esperdia, which means Jerusalem is lost. And, and for some reason, that was hard for them to say, so they, they shortened it down. And instead of saying Jerusalem has a perdia, somehow, and I don't, I'm not a Latin scholar, so I don't know how it works, but they tied it down to the words hep. And so they would yell, hep, hep. And the people would yell what? Hooray. Hep, hep. Hooray. Hep, hep. That's where that word comes from. And see, we know today, we only, the only way we know what hep, hep, hooray is, is because fast forward years, when Jerusalem had been dispersed throughout the world to Russia, uh, the U.S., to uh, Germany, to England, all over the known worlds. Germany was a very big part of this. So in, in, in 1819, there was what was called the Hep-Hep riots, where German Jews began to be persecuted in Germany. And what the Germans began to do is they, they, they conquered them, they would, they would kill them, they would persecute them, and they would yell, Hep-Hep, hooray, when it happened. So years later, after Jesus is there, years later, after all this happens, this is the context of Israel. Dispersed, weakened, they are put all over the planets, and, and it had been that way really since the first dispersion, 500 BC. So into this context comes Ezekiel chapter 37. You've got to see this today. Ezekiel 37, open your Bibles up if you would, starting at verse 1, and it says this, the hand of the Lord is upon me. This is Ezekiel saying, he said, he brought me out of the spirit, uh, uh, spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me among them, and behold, there are many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Now, he had a creepy vision, okay? Let's just be honest here. Can you imagine seeing this for, you know, first? And you see, wow, there's bones uh, for everywhere. When I was in Michigan, our first place we lived, we had a neighbor that obviously loved Halloween, and he would build a, 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 a fence around his, his front yard, and he would literally load his front yard with skeleton bones. 
Now, I hope they weren't real. Who knows? But, you know, he would, he would load his front yard with these bones, and it was just, they were everywhere. And I remember going on walks, and I hated going by his house. It was creepy. Okay, he had lights going and all this kind of stuff. It's creepy. And so that's what Ezekiel's seeing right here. He's seeing this, this creepy sign of dead bones and dry bones filling this valley. Now, what's he, what he's seeing here is he's seeing a symbolism of what actually happened someday to Israel. These bones, these people died a quick, sudden, violent death. These people, these bones had been put in this valley. It was full of them. There was who knows how many he saw. What he said he saw, it was everywhere. It covered the entire valley, probably a lot. He was seeing a, a, an aftermath of a mass murder. He was seeing millions of people who died in a short period of time that were not properly buried. Yeah, I believe that Ezekiel is seeing the, the effects of the great holocaust that happened in, 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 in Germany, starting with the Hep Hep riots of 1819 that lasted really up until World War II. You've seen pictures, haven't you? You've seen pictures of, 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 of Jews that were being pushed into giant, humongous graves of people, and they would be pushed in there, and they, those bodies would be burned. It's disgusting, but it's, it's true. What would be left over was the bones, was left over was, it was instantly and quick and paint and it was, it was fast. And it was these giant valleys of bones that were there. And I believe that he is seeing this happen. He's, we continue here in verse 3. He says, he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? Good question. And, and I, I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord." Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I'll put sinews upon you, and cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, as he continues here. What's, What's interesting about this is that God could have said, Hey, can these bones live, Ezekiel? And Ezekiel said, Well, yeah, of course they can. God could have said, Bam, live. But no, what God does here is God tells the man of God to prophesy and the bones then begin to live. There's something amazing about God and his interaction with people throughout the course of history that God calls you and calls me to speak his word. Here's the problem is that in certain circles, this idea gets twisted to our own personal gain. Well, God wants you to have whatever you want. God wants you to have the best of the best. So just speak it into existence, and it's there. Scripture tells us that God does that, but God does that when it comes on his terms and on his plan and his purpose. God wants people to come to him. God wants people to find and follow him. It's what he's called on from the beginning. He calls on us to tell them. The Scripture says, How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. That's you and that's me. That was for free today. We can continue here in verse 7. As I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. Uh, Flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. That's an interesting part there, isn't it? These bones were restored physically. the, the, The people were put back together 
physically, but the breath was not yet there. They were not yet spiritually alive. You see, this is the state of Israel today. God has, has brought the country back. God's brought the people back, but they're not yet spiritually alive. You know, some have. Many Jews have come to Jesus. I, I know a few of them. Uh, there are some wonderful people, but as a general rule, as a general whole, the nation of Israel has not yet returned to Jesus. Guess what? It's going to happen. God will change that. God will change that situation because of his faithfulness to his friend. Let's continue. Verse 9. He said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the, to the, to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. What's going to happen? I prophesied, he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. That's an interesting word there, too. These, these people became militarized. These people became military. Remember, this is the same valley of bones that he saw that had been killed and had, had been mass murdered. The same people were, the, the rattling came, the, they came together, and when they came together, they came together as an exceedingly great, what? army. They're militarized. At one time, weak, defenseless, and slaughtered, but not anymore. Not again. Why does Israel continue to support herself? Why does Israel continue to defend herself? Because of this right here. Not again. Not going to happen again. Many of them remember, many of them can see that throughout the world history, the treatment of the Jews upon this land. On this world, it's been terrible. Why is that? There's more going on than just meets the eye. Verse 11, he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. In case you're wondering, well, are you sure, pastor? Is this really what it means? He tells us right there. He gives us pretty clear. He says, behold, our bones are dried up, they say. Our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, my people. I will bring you to the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord God. I will open your graves. I will restore you from your graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And what? And I will place you in your what? Your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. Church, we are living in and seeing the fulfillment of that promise right in front of our eyes. We are seeing that fulfillment, and I'll tell you what, this morning, it's not completed yet, but it's coming when he'll be finished, that, when that'll be finished, and that is going to be an amazing day. But, but here this morning is what's significant and fascinating about this. Do you realize that no people group in the history of the world that has been supplanted from their land for more than 500 years, has been able to retain culture, retain things, and be able to come back into their land. It's never been able to happen. And we know right here in our own land, we see an illustration of that with the Native Americans. Uh, you'll see a picture up here uh, in a minute. You'll see a picture of, uh, of my, one of my ancestors. This is my great, great, great something, Grandma. It's coming, I promise you. Uh, right there on the left, you know, I see where my, I get my, my, my looks from. I'm just, you know, right there on the left, uh, that's my great whatever grandma. She is a full blood Native American. 
So, and many of us have that probably, right? Many of us have some Native American in us. And what's fascinating is that in this land, uh, the Europeans came, and this is not a, a, a discussion on that, this is another day, but we came in, if you're of European descent, we came in and we subplanted the people that were already here, didn't we? There was nations that were thriving throughout this land. We subplanted them, put them in camps, and then put them in their own places, but never really. And, and what happened was, and the reason why we won the battle, is because we were able to disperse the Native American Indians, their lands. And what happens when that happens is that the stronger culture will come back and will subplant and will kind of take on the weaker culture, and weaker culture rarely ever has a chance to regain that power ever again, especially after, as we found in history, for 500 years. It has never happened yet. The reality is for the Native Americans to rise up again and to reclaim their land, many don't even know where they originally came from. We have the Trail of Tears that, you know, we don't know where they came from. The chances of them being able to raise up and be a sovereign nation again is difficult. But the Jewish people are different. The Jewish people, after two thousand years, not 500, not 1,000, not 750, but 2,000 years the Jewish people were able to come back. After 2,000 years of being dispersed to over 100 countries, after being dispersed and being persecuted, had been able to come back again in their own country and have much of the same original culture as they had for 2,000 years. It is literally a miracle. And it happened in our nation, it happened in our generation in 1948. When Israel somehow, some way, was again able to regain their nation status and began, as the Bible here and as Ezekiel saw it so many years ago, to come back again to their own land. It is absolutely an unbelievable fulfillment of prophecy that we can see not a thousand years ago, but right before our eyes. But of course, not everyone was happy about this in 1948. I want you to catch the heart of what we're saying this morning. You say, well, what does this have to do with us? Well, it has a lot to do with us this morning. Get this today. What God loves, Satan hates. What God has promised, Satan does not want to see happen. As, 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 As much and big as those promises are sometimes, as small as they are, What God loves, Satan hates. What God wants to see happen, Satan will throw and will make an attack on that to subplant and destroy God's plan in that place. Don't think a promise that God gives will come easy. And we think sometimes, we have a lot, well, God promised me this, and God promised me that. Whatever, that's not the point today. But God has promised us some things in our lives. In the scriptures, God has been clear on promises. There are things God's promised us that the enemy does not want to see happen. We have a real enemy. His name is Satan. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But God's coming. We may have life and life more abundantly. But don't think for a minute it's going to be easy. We see this throughout history. In 1948, every single president since Dwight Eisenhower has struggled with this moment. When Israel came back into being, they struggled with this. The rebirth of, this, of Israel is known as the everlasting covenant. It's found in Psalm 105, 6. 
uh, starting in 6, it says, O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant, his promise, forever. The war that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant he made with Abraham is sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statue to Israel as a what? As an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance forever. This promise was almost dead. This promise was left for dead. This promise was gone. This promise was, was forgotten about for thousands of years. The promise that Ezekiel had laid was, was there. It was hanging in the balance, but it was not there. It was seen impossible. And, and, and we're going to look today at some places in which these promises were spoken, and we're going to find something amazing about this. And again, what does this have to do with us? Buckle in. You'll, you'll see there's five places that God spoke a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Five places. Five spots where God said, upon this land... Upon, put your put, foot down, this is part of what I will give you. This is part of that promise. This is part of your land you're going to get someday. Here we go. First one is Shechem. Shechem is modern-day Nablus. And Nablus is the Roman name for Neapolis. Uh, Arabs can't say peas well, so it's been shortened to Nablus, I believe. And in Genesis chapter 12, God promises, this is the first place, God promises Abram that he will, that you go to Shechem, I will give you this land. If you ever, if you ever wonder why Abram was such a traveler, never had a home, God was laying down the foundation of the promise that he had in the future. Man, that'll preach too. You know, you may feel like you are, you are a wanderer, like you are wandering through life, and God's promised things to you, God's spoken things to you, and it seems impossible do you realize Abram never got to see the fruit of his promise? Never. He didn't see it in real life, but he saw it in, this, in his faith eyes. You want to know why God blessed Abram so much? Not because Abram was an amazing, you know, talented, better than anybody else guy was. He wasn't. It's clear in Scripture. Why God blessed Abram is because Abram, what, believed God, and it was credited to him because he believed God as righteousness. Man, there's so much truth to that. Abram saw the promise of God, and God sent him on a journey first to Shechem and then to Hebron. In Genesis 13, 14 through 18, God says, Abram, go to Hebron. I'll show you this land. Look northward, westward, southward, eastward. This land I'm giving you. And so he shows him this. Hang out here for a while. Here it is. And then move, he says, go down to the third place, Moriah. Now, Moriah is potentially the coolest part of the promise. Because Moriah was what became the city of Jerusalem. Now, at this point, Moriah was nothing more than a small cattle town. It was just a teeny little encampment of tents. There was not much there. There was mountains that surround the city. It was there, but it was a small, small little place at this point. So God sends Abram to, to Abraham to Moriah, and he says here, Genesis 22... He says, in verse 2, he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. That's fascinating. We can't, oh man. Verse 9, when they came to the place that God, which God told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then Abram, verse 10, reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Pause. I had a conversation one time with a friend of mine who is an atheist and said, that is one reason why I can't believe in God. You know what the thing about this is, though? Is Abraham knew he wasn't going to have to do it. Remember, the promise came from Abraham. It said, Abraham, someday you are going to have a nation. It's going to be great. There are going to be many people that are going to come for you, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. So here he sees his son, led there by God, who he sees his son. He makes his altar. Abraham knows that even if he has to put his knife in there, God will raise him up. He knows this isn't going to happen. He knows this isn't going to be the the case. And sure enough, he continues, but the angel of the Lord called him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham. And this this is capitalized angel because this is Jesus. And he says, and he said here, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, seeing that you've not even withheld your only son from me. Abraham called the name of that place. The Lord will provide. And to this day it's said, on that mount of the Lord shall be provided. Do you know that Jewish custom and history tells us that the name of that mountain? That mountain is the place in which Jesus was crucified, given his life. See, Abraham saw this before it happened. Abraham saw this, that this is the place that God is going to finally finish this off and change the world. He saw that way, 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 way before it ever happened. It's amazing. And then verse 4, and then number 4, it doesn't just stop with Abraham. Isaac, his son, saw Gerar. He he went to Gerar. In Genesis 26, Verses 1 through 4, we find Gerar, which is the modern-day Gaza Strip. And, and here, he says, Isaac, go here. Your father Abraham was faithful. Go to this place. I will give you Gerar, this area. And then Isaac's son came out to, and to Jacob. And Jacob, uh, in Genesis 35, 9 through 15, got a pair to Jacob and told him to go to Bethel, or if you say Bethel here in, in Minnesota, he sent him to Bethel and said, this land I will give you. Five places. The fulfillment of that, that promise is what, is what Ezekiel saw when he saw these five places. Now what's interesting here, as I said before, hopefully you're still with me here today. I mean, I'm, I know it's exciting, but I hope you're still with me today. But as I said before, every president since Dwight Eisenhower has had to deal with the conflict that came as a result of this prophecy of Ezekiel being fulfilled. Palestinians have, had pressured Israel to give up two areas, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. That's the two areas they want the most. Now, the West Bank's not West Israel. It's west of the Jordan River. It's the West Bank of this area. This is the point that, that Palestinians want. In addition, they want, of course, the Gaza Strip, two parts there are specifically different areas of Israel that they say, this is what we want. Now, this is fascinating. I want to lay over if you, today, if you would, a, a modern-day spot of where those two parts are. Take a look at this and, and listen here. The gray part here and the big part, that is the, that is the, uh, the West Bank. The smaller part is the Gaza Strip. Anybody else find it fascinating? The very land, the very spots that God said, this land, this land, this land, this land, this land, will I give to you in your inheritance is the very land that is, that is most under conflict nowadays. 
Why is Israel like they are? Because this has been promised to them from the beginning. What, what's fascinating too, oh man, what's fascinating about this is that up until the 40s, these areas were largely uninhabited. History tells us, and no one will tell you this, but you got to know your history. If you do, you'll know this. History tells us that these two areas were swamplands, and they were uninhabited. And until the, the, the Jews came in, when they were given the land in the 40s, when they, when they came in, they drained the swamps, they farmed the land, they built the cities, they built things up, and as they did that, so came the, 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 the Arab people, and together they began to grow in this area, and there is, an, uh, there is a, 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 a modern-day site we can see from many generations back of where the enemy does not want to see God's way and God's plan and God's purpose fulfilled. His promise, this is huge. This nation is not just some little part of the world that doesn't matter. This nation is the place that God promised his people would be theirs. That's the place where God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We can see in this part the hand of God ministering and working throughout history. If Pastor Joe, if you'd come and play very, very quietly behind me. What does all this mean this morning? It means, this is, listen to this. It says, God has never and God will never forget his people. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, it says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. This is Paul talking. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, the Jews, According to the flesh, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, all of it, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and they're from their race. According to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This nation, this Israel, is not just some place. This is, we are seeing God work and minister, and, and it's, it's amazing. They have stumbled over the gospel, and you know what? That's good news for us. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 11, so I ask, they stumble in order they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. For their trespass means riches for the world. Their failure means riches for the Gentile. How much more will... Will their full inclusion mean it's coming, it's going to happen? And any Christian that resents Israel is missing the boat. We serve an amazing God who is powerful, who is mighty, who is victorious, who keeps his promises. Many people have questions regarding the end time. Are we close? Does Israel's nation Israel as a nation indicate we're there? It's a great question. My, my answer is a guarded yes. I believe this, and we'll get into some of these things next week. Much of end times prophecy can't happen without Israel being a nation. Israel's formation is a key piece. But much more importantly, it's an indication the Bible is accurate, it's authoritative. And it reveals that God's promises will happen no matter what the world says, does, or operates. We can see it. 
It's right there before our eyes. It's there. And if we miss this in our lives, we miss so much. We miss this when struggle comes and difficulty comes. We can stand firm and say, God, you've delivered Israel. God, you've allowed her to get back to her nation. Then my situation is, is okay. Things can happen. Man, if we miss this, we miss out so much. The things laid out in the Word regards to this stuff is more than just coincidence. It's hauntingly accurate. I close with some lessons we can learn from this today. God is working in our world today. This shows us that it's not just, that's not just empty words. That's not just like, well, God's working. He, we can see it happening. It's, it's there before us. We turn the news on. We watch the news. We say, that's, that's God's working. God's ministering. God's moving in our world today. So if we get concerned and worried and frustrated and all this, this is happening over here, this is happening over here, remember this. That God can take a people who were not a people for 2,000 years and pull them from Russia and the U.S. and Germany and Japan and all over the entire known world and put them in this little place that they were promised from day one. And if that's a place that the world argues over and is upset about, I think he can handle what's going on in our lives. That's, that's number one. Number two, when God makes a promise, he keeps it, no matter what. Again, the world can do what they want. The, the nations can rise up. Things can happen. That can happen. It's, it's bad. I don't like what's happening. But guess what? It doesn't matter that much. Because God is in control. And we have to understand. This is why I think it's so important for believers to see this, especially nowadays. Because we get so worried about junk in the world, don't we? We get so concerned with, oh, the Muslims are going to do this to us, and the, you know, the, the liberals are going to do that to us, and this is going to happen, this is going to happen. We get so worried about that stuff. Oh, God, what's going to happen? Oh, it's going to all fall apart. Well, you know what? It might. I don't know. But I know one thing. I know one thing that we can stand upon is that God's word is true, it's accurate, he's working, he's ministering, and he's got in his hand, and it's going to be okay. When you watch the news, you get, you get worried, I want to encourage you to turn off the news, open up your Bible, and read it and say, God, this is exciting. Lord, this is an opportunity we have to reach people for you, Lord Jesus, because you're coming again soon. Man, it's exciting. We don't have to be worried we have to pray. We have to minister. We have to work. We have things to do. Because people matter to God. Why am I passionate? Why do I get so crazy and blah, blah, blah? Why? Because I believe this stuff. Because I think that God's got good things in the future for us. Our best days are not behind us. Christianity's best days are not behind us. Our best days are forward. Our best days are when we take the word and take the gospel and say, Lord, I believe it. Lord, I'm standing upon this word. I will do what you call me to do. Our best days are when people like Jay, who rear-ends a Muslim, who's upset about it and frustrated, says, no, I have a bigger plan God has in place. I will do, and you don't know he's left jobs, he's left things. To follow this dream, it's cost him, but God is good. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to point you out there, Jay, but I love that. Number three, we are blessed when we blessed Israel. Genesis 12, 3 talks about that. It's clear. I will bless those who bless you, God says. That's the beginning. 
throughout history, we, we see that the nations that do not bless Israel are nations that are destroyed. Babylon came, came Babylon was powerful. They came and they fell. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. You saw the writing in the wall. You know that part. Rome came and, and went. I mean, I go on and on and on and on. God blesses us when we bless Israel. It's in his word. If you don't think it's true, well, you've got to take it up with the word, not mine. I'm just talk, talking about it today. God blesses us when we bless Israel. I don't want my generation, I don't want us not realize the value and the importance of blessing Israel. It means we pray for her. We, we love Israel. I, I laugh at people who say, well, I'm a Jew, because by, by, by grafting, no. God has blessed you, and God has allowed you to come in to, uh, and, and to have a place at the table because of his grace and mercy. It says right here, but there is no question that God has a special place in his heart for Jews. We shouldn't be jealous and like, oh, why not us, God? We should celebrate that. But our God is a God of his promises, and our God is a God who keeps his promises to the end, to a thousand generations, it says right here. And lastly, we have nothing to fear. You need to be here next week, though. I'm just going to give you a little taste here. Luke 21, 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise up your hands, because your redemption is coming close. The word of God is accurate, it's authority, it's amazing, it's incredible. We have that. Bow your heads, close your eyes this morning. Praise you, Jesus. Lord, we, we love, Lord, the majesty of your word. Lord, the majesty, the glory of your word, that the glory that your word reveals about you. That, Lord, you're not just some uh, get-rich-quick scheme. You're not just some, some entity that we, you know, makes us help live better lives. And have better. No, Lord, you are a God of glory and authority and power and might. And you have some way, some reason opened up the floodgates that we could know you and we could walk with you and have peace with you. God, thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you, God, for the opportunity that we have to bow our knees before you and say thank you, Lord Jesus. We stand this morning across this room before we close today, I want to give us a chance and a, and a moment today to, to, to take a, some time to, to reflect on what we've learned this morning. If I could have the, the elders and prayer team come forward and line the front here today. And if you have a need this morning, that same God that delivered Israel, that same God that's working in our world, is the same God who promises to work in your life. He keeps his promises. We pray. We have a prayer need today. These men and women of God who are up here today, they'll pray with you this morning and they'll agree with you. And if you're here especially, if you are a person that says, I've never given my heart to Jesus, but man, pastor, I think I need to this morning. If that's you, I want you especially to come forward and find a person to say, I need to give my life to Jesus. It is the greatest decision you will ever make. I've been on both sides of the fence. I know how it works. You will not regret that decision. Will it cost you? Yes. Will it be tough? Sometimes? Absolutely. The best things in life are difficult. Which is the boss of the best things in life. Today as we close this morning, for all the rest of us today, I want us to think, reflect, remember the majesty of our God who is able to take a people 
persecuted for years. A people who have messed up royally. A people who have consistently and continually done knucklehead things. We say, why, Israel, why'd you do that? Well, God made a promise to their father. God's promise is faithful. He continues to work and administer and move. And that's the kind of God that we serve. And I just wanted today, before we close, to tell him thank you. His uplifted voice is at hand. Jesus.